All right, gentlemen, we are recording. For realsies? For realsies. Okay. Church in space. Welcome to Church in Space. In 3D. Man, we are getting so good at that. It's awesome. Today we decided to do economics of Star Trek. Uh, Captain Picard says this thing in Star Trek First Contact. Economics of the future is somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Okay, I'm going to subtract my total depravity Calvinist. <laughs> like, I firmly believe that <laughs> that's impossible, but <laughs> I suspend my disbelief for a moment. And there is this weird kind of economics of the future, isn't mm-hmm. there? Like, there's no money. So what does that mean? What would a culture look like with no money? And this is where it gets interesting, because officially, mm-hmm. they're in this economy that doesn't require yeah. cash, you know, right. of any kind, currency. Yet, there is an underground economy, mm-hmm. even going all the way back to the original series. Mm-hmm. Because you can't have a Harcourt Fenton Mud without there being an underground economy. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't have a Cyrano Jones, the person who introduced Tribbles, without right. having an underground economy. So right. there are clearly these rogues. And you can't have Ferengi. Their whole civilization is completely predicated and that's why you don't have to give up your Calvinist view because the Ferengi are out there with their gold-plated latinum right. you know <laughs> and so they're there right we never really discover Romulans or Klingons what they're up to but uh-huh. you kind of get the impression they have a cash system of some of kind. some kind yeah. but it is beyond what our current earth stuff is that we're familiar with so i have this theory about why everybody's always declaring war on the federation and fighting them and it's it's the economic theory of why everybody hates the federation and the theory is this. The, the Federation is causing hyperinflation in everybody's economies. Mm-hmm. They got these replicators, and they don't have money because they have the replicators. Right. right? Because you can just press buttons right. and tell the computer to make whatever you right. want. Right. And this is actually pretty realistic in that if you had a way of turning energy into matter and matter into energy at will, like you'd be post-scarcity. There'd be no mm-hmm. scarcity whatsoever. Right. right, which is why they don't talk about an economy with the Q continuum. The Q, yeah. obviously. Right. You know, well, same reason, right, yeah. exactly. And so since they can do this, money's kind of like, well, I, who needs it? Okay, get that. Okay. But there's these other economies that very clearly have money, right? Ferengi being the best example, right? And they have these gold-plated latinum, mm-hmm. right? And my theory is is that a culture meets the Federation and starts trading with them. And the Federation, not thinking it's a problem, just starts replicating their money. Here, here's a billion pieces of gold-pressed latinum. Give us what we want. And it's actually, the Federation is out there in, in Star Trek ruining everybody's economy. Because, because they're just printing they're just, cash. They're just well, printing cash over and over and over again. <laughs> but I thought the point of gold-pressed latinum was you couldn't replicate it. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's okay. why the Ferengi settle yes. on that, at least uh, when they're dealing with the Federation. Okay. Yes, like, it's too dense. It's too dense or, or, it's too dense or yeah, something. Yeah, like, okay. the complexities. That ruins my theory on it. Well, it's not a bad theory. Yeah. But it's not a law. Right. They're right. ruining everybody else's economy besides yeah. the Because Ferengi. you still yeah. have supply-side issues. Right? Yeah, Supply-side right. economics. The Federation can make the goods right. at will, right. which then devalues if the Ferengi are trying to trade for it. Right. Yeah. It lowers the cost, and they can't— Right. Which is why, like, like you know, beginning of Star Trek Next Generation, like, they're fighting the Ferengi, and, like, it seems like every species in the Alpha Quadrant's, like— 
tried to bomb the Federation <laughs> at some point. It's like like the rest of the galaxy views the Federation as this massive economic terrorist organization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because well, they're just like ruining everybody else's economy. <laughs> isn't that like most of the point of Voyager is that I can't remember what the alien species is, but they're always trying to get onto the ship to steal the replicators. Right. Yes. No, like, that's exactly true. <laughs> and you got to think about like when people go out and colonize planets, mm-hmm. they're not taking replicators with them most of the time. Yes, you may have a couple of them, but yeah. going out and settling in and having to actually build and farm and do all this stuff, but never have a replicator. Mm-hmm. You got to think also on the medical side, like what happens if, like, you know how we, there's all these, this disaster on this planet and they need all these medical supplies, so we're going to go here. Mm-hmm. What would happen if spoilers button star trek discovery when dilithium all explodes mm-hmm. what would happen if somehow all the replicators went down not saying that everything would just go back to a currency standpoint mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be necessary because everyone would be trading what they have yeah. mm-hmm. well that still gets into even with discovery right mm-hmm. that's part of the reason the federation has collapsed because now there is a scarcity economy again mm-hmm. Because the dilithium is part of what generates so much power mm-hmm. and helps you control the matter-antimatter reaction so that you can focus the energy. Mm-hmm. So without the dilithium, you can't just willy-nilly use replicators. You, now you have limited power sources. So okay. you can use replicators, yeah. but... See, see, everybody, everything returns back to we're sinful, awful people. <laughs> I think you're taking it a little too far. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> but that's kind of the point, right? And they can no longer just traverse vast mm. distances yeah. Yeah. so that if your planet doesn't have a lot of a particular thing, mm-hmm. it's not just a phone call away and it's on the next semi-truck starship right. that's right. coming out, next cargo carrier. Yeah, That is where I think the key is in understanding the Federation economy. It's predicated on abundance precisely because of what Dave said. Mm -hmm. They learned how to harness energy in an almost infinite manner. So they can harness that energy and make whatever matter they want to make out of it. But when that ability to have infinite energy is cut off, then you're back into a scarcity economy. And all the old rules come back into play. Right. Honestly, right now, we're dealing with a whole lot of supply chain issues because Mm -hmm. of COVID. That makes me think of that. Here in America, we have abundance left and right. I mean, bold is a great example of how much abundance we really have here at the church. Mm -hmm. But now, because all the supply chain issues, I was waiting on two weeks for bikes that were supposed to come into port and come over to our shop. And they're just sitting there in a port because no one can check them in fast enough. But that abundance to scarcity just takes... 2.5 2.5 seconds. Yeah. Yep. And that's an interesting thing that you bring up too, right there, right? The U.S. is the most abundant country on the planet. Mm-hmm. And yet we behave, we act, we run our entire economy predicated on the concept that we are the least abundant, that we have the most scarcity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how we can get into a situation where we are now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world's most abundant economy. And yet we have this huge, ginormous gap between the ultra-wealthy and the rest of us, as they say, you know, like the 1% or the 2%, depending on how you're counting. And that's only gotten worse over the last 30 years, even though our total economy has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's actually from a class system, it's gotten worse. So yeah, we're the most abundant economy, but we behave like we're the most scarcity-driven economy. I find that fascinating. It's like a cognitive dissonance. That's always my problem with Voyager. Voyager's a great show. I like Voyager. 
in real life, you know how they're ration. They have replicator rations, yeah. right mm-hmm. on the show. In real life, those replicator rations get turned into currency on that ship, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. like yeah. like Tom Paris is out there, the richest man on the ship, because he's like wheeling and dealing his currency rations, and he would, yeah, yeah right, and he would. he would, right, and like the fact that they didn't even talk about that, that there wasn't even like this point of tension, like really on the show, you know, that could have been a multi-episode arc, of yeah. Like, mm-hmm. How do we reinstitute this post-scarcity, almost like communist utopia society? Like when they do have a limiting principle of there's only so much power this one ship has, you know, and it's like that would have been an interesting avenue for like exploration of like how changed really are these future humans. They kind of brushed on that and then they Mm. didn't really fully explore it. That's what Neelix's character was all about. Right. When they introduced him. Right. He was a trader. He was going to be the, the wheeler and dealer. And yeah. And so they bring him on board because he's the one that's going to help them do all this trading right. and wheeling and dealing. And he, he has to cook them real meals because that saves replicator yeah. energy. And yeah. like, right. They Which, were so close. With Neelix's character, <laughs> uh-huh. would also, like him, he would be like Tom Paris's rival. Right. Because he's growing and obtaining real food not replicated food right. which would be in high demand mm-hmm. right they don't explore it you know it's like they went halfway with neelix mm-hmm. and then they went off in another direction with the character right this is all to say makers of star trek we have a proposal for you <laughs> it's called star trek voyager the vegetable wars <laughs> there we go voyager yes. Veggie Tales. Yes, yes yes reboot star trek voyager with kate blanchett as the captain <laughs> and do all the hard issues that you skipped over. <laughs> and by gum, give Harry Kim a promotion this time. <laughs> like, you'd think he'd like, when he got back, he'd skip like eight levels or something yeah, like that. Yeah, go right to Admiral. Yeah, yeah, right, you know. It's like, talk about that. Oh, no. Kim, Harry Kim was dissed yeah. the worst of any any character outside of a red shirt. Yeah. I kind of get the principle of like, if you kept promoting everybody the way they should have been, like it'd be a ship full of commanders. What does promotion mean when like, you're literally the only... You're the only ensign yeah, on the ship. You're the only yeah. ensign, yeah. like, well, not only on the ship, but within, like, 80,000 light years. <laughs> yeah. I get the principle of why he wasn't promoted. Yeah. That's yeah. a really bad, like, first five years <laughs> of of Star of Starfleet. I suspect economics, right? Because yeah. what do you have? You have a scarcity mm-hmm. in the supply of ranks mm-hmm. yeah. on Voyager. Right. So. Yeah, they'd be, like, bribing each other. You're right. They'd be, like, using replicator rations to, like bribe each other for like command posts yeah pips (laughs) i'll I'll treat you this pip man there'd be like this whole like soviet underground command economy going on there would be (laughs) it would be great it would be and think about that wouldn't that have made voyager so much more interesting i mean already i think it's one of the stronger shows i think it's very underrated just the lower decks just okay i'm gonna trade my rations for this pip so i I can do this assignment because i don't want to clean the toilets anymore right yeah right it's like that guy slaving away in the in the actual lower decks episode down in the astrography room. You yeah, know? yeah, and he's like, "I won't eat for a week, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'll get to be ensign and I can yeah. get out of this room." <laughs> in that way, lower decks, in some ways, is the most realistic of all the Star Trek series. Oh yeah, yeah. because yeah. they touch on more of these types of things. Yeah, like when um, when the command group had to go into the uh, simulators so that mm. they would have to be on the lower decks. Mm-hmm. That was a great episode, mm-hmm. but that would not happen on Voyager. No, yeah. but you would think that there would be one person that would choose to do all the really jobs Uh just so he could get all the rations, all of the command. And like after like a year or so, just be like, Boom. Right. I am now the captain of the ship. Right. I cleaned everybody's toilets. Yeah. Everyone's underneath me. There'd totally me. be like a Tom Sawyer like situation <laughs> yeah. going on. You know, somebody who like starts taking on all these jobs nobody wants to do and then yeah. like half pays somebody else to do them. 
Which brings us closer to the Mirror Universe Federation. Yeah. Except in this case, instead of killing to rise up, right. it's buying. you're just very mercantile about right. it. Right. You yeah. buy your way you're up to it. Yeah. I would feel like that would be how Ferengi mm-hmm. rank up. Like, I'm just going to buy out this person. That's literally how it happens, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you get so much business, and then you get promoted in Ferengi society, yeah. basically, yeah. right? I remember there was like this DS9 episode where, and I don't really like DS9 all that much. I'll confess that. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people in my generation especially really like DS9, but I never liked it. But there's this one rant I remember where Quark basically like goes at Cisco and he's like, you people think we're so much better than us, but like my society never had slavery or like anything. It's because we had money and we just bought our way. <laughs> like there was something to that rant. <laughs> like you people had wars and my people never had any of that <laughs> because we were just interested in making money. <laughs> and everybody was. Yeah. yeah. Think about being one of those first Ferengi and uh-huh. just having all of the money. And oh, someone yeah. else stealing it. Yeah. You would think that there would be a lot more crime in Ferengi, like larceny, like white-collar crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never hear about it. Well, I think it's because of the rules of acquisition, right? Yeah. Where they codify larceny, basically. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, you can have what we would consider a crime, yeah. what we would consider bad business ethics, mm-hmm. because yeah. they've codified. It's actually their, their crime that. is violating those things, you know. Right. Law and order, Ferengi edition. Well, it's... <laughs> 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 Give me 20 bucks right here and it's settled. <laughs> you can actually read in the Bible this moment where they invented money. You know, there's actually this moment where like actual cash economies are like starting to develop. Mm-hmm. It's just altering Israelite society to the point of like some of the later prophets are at this point, you know, like the minor prophets that we never read. It starts centralizing their economy because around Jerusalem because there's all this money that's suddenly available. Mm, yeah. And it, the prophet Micah, this is actually, you know, when he says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is actually the major point of most of the book is money economies are like centraling every, everything around Jerusalem yeah. and how much that's like undoing the whole system, yeah. <laughs> you know, simply mm. because of that. That's actually pretty fascinating because when yeah. you think about it, you know, now the archaeological evidence is showing mm-hmm. the famed King Solomon's mines mm-hmm. weren't Solomon's. It yeah. was other people around Israel mm-hmm. that did. Yeah. Solomon, well, he was Ferengi, basically. Yeah. That was his brilliance. He acquired. Mm-hmm. He yeah. entered basic what we would today call licensing agreements, mm-hmm. where he would allow the transport mm-hmm. of the things that had been mined. I think copper was the big one. Mm-hmm. So he allowed people to transport the copper through Israel for a fee. Mm-hmm. And there was so much of that trade, so many yeah. of those important trade routes that went through Israel. Mm-hmm. That's how Solomon got super rich. Yeah. It was through licensing rights. Right. Like, traded, hey man, toll roads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that was basically it. Yeah. And so that kind of gets right into that philosophy of the prophets, right? Because yeah. now Solomon... Solomon isn't making money off actual labor, mm-hmm. off actual goods. That sounds like a mafia movie right there. No, it is. <laughs> it is. I mean, ancient kingship is really more like, like there's this line in The Sopranos where uh, somebody asks, what happened to the Romans? Where did they go? And Tony Soprano goes, they became effing us. <laughs> 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 and there's a lot of truth to that, that yeah. like ancient kingship and empires are really like giant mafia enterprises. Like that's really what they are. They're mafia enterprises. With armies. <laughs> but that's basically what it is. Gosh, um, I never thought of it that way. Well, you're right. You know, what mm-hmm. do you do when you meet the Dawn? You kiss his ring. Kiss his mm-hmm. ring. Kingship is a mafia enterprise, just it's got standing armies along with it. Solomon's record biblically is like actually pretty mixed. Like, it's he's, he's a fascinating guy. 
on the one hand, he's the guy who God grants wisdom to. He's the guy who built the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, the rest of the Old Testament after Solomon is like basically wrestling with what Solomon did wrong. The whole rest of the Old Testament is this kind of extended discourse on like the path taken by Solomon yeah. is kind of the wrong path. Isn't part of that because there's a part that praises David, praises Solomon. Mm-hmm. That's kind of written by, I don't know, one set of people. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff that criticizes Solomon and David mm-hmm. is written by the priestly class as a way of trying to maintain their own power. The biblical term is we call it Deuteronomic history. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the guy who wrote first and second Samuel, Joshua, that kind of stuff, or maybe not the guy. The school that wrote those parts of the history books in the Old Testament also wrote the book of Deuteronomy. And so they write kind of the whole history to show how much Israel violated the book of Deuteronomy. Anytime there's a good king, it's because he kept what Deuteronomy is talking about. Even though they don't know what's in Deuteronomy, you know, it's like they kept, they followed these rules, you know, they, yeah. they follow the Ten Commandments, they do all this stuff. Because, right, the author of Deuteronomy has a particular point he's trying to make, and Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon because it failed to uphold the law, and because the kings failed to uphold the law. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Walter Brueggemann describes it as there's a conflict between Moses and Solomon. Moses kind of argues for this much more confederal, tribal, far less centralized society, and Solomon has a very centralized society, yeah. like to the point where he actually undoes the tribes in his organizational system of the kingdom. He divides it into like 10 mile by 10 mile squares, basically, uh-huh. regardless of tribe. <laughs> there is this conflict between Solomon's vision for the kingdom and Moses's kind of, you know, the Moses vision of the kingdom. Yeah. And it all kind of gets wrapped up in the promise of a hope for a Messiah of like all these things get wrapped up together. You know, like this Ezekiel vision of like, yeah, we have the king, but the king does what he's supposed to, and Jerusalem acts the way it's supposed to. And, you know, it's like it all kind of gets wrapped up together and is the hope in the end. Well, let's bring it back to the hope of Star Trek. Let's bring it back to the hope of Star Trek. (laughs) Why I was chomping at the bit to do this discussion is that that vision of the Federation economy, maybe like the vision Ezekiel had Mm -hmm. for Israel, is not unobtainable. It's not as fantastic as it may seem. And I say that because I know a guy named Jim Ritchie Dunham, who's one of the formal originators of the philosophy of abundance as an economic system. And when you look at his research, look at how he came to come to that conclusion and start actually formalizing the philosophy of abundance, the economy of abundance, it makes sense. He was approached by several different groups to start studying why are there these outliers in the business community who are so supremely successful that they're way off the bell curve, right? So it's not like, you know, GM, Ford, IBM, whoever, all the blue chip stock people. They're in the middle of the bell curve Mm -hmm. when you look at how they work and how their profits are generated and all that. But then you get these outliers that are way ahead of them on success. And when Jim started investigating him, he found that none of them followed standard business protocol. And when he really dug down, he found that their CEOs and everybody else in the C-suite operated from a philosophy of abundance. They didn't look at it as, well, there's only so much money, so it's got to go to the shareholders. It can't also be split with better pay from our employees. There's only so many resources we can get in the manufacturing plant, so we got to focus on just making this one product and ignore the ideas our workers have for other stuff. They threw all that out the window. Everything was like, no, yeah, no, if we're doing well, there's plenty of money. We share it all around. Or, hey, the guys on the front line of the plant have this great idea. 
Let's go ahead and Mm -hmm. make it happen. And that's why they're so phenomenally successful. So the companies he found that already work Mm -hmm. in an economy of abundance are the ones that are way ahead of our standard status quo companies. Yeah. People listening, go check out Jim Ritchie Dunham. Search him out. He's got several websites or several companies now that he's running to help other companies improve Mm -hmm. in that way. But that's why I'm excited about it, right? Mm Because it's not theoretical. It's one of those visions that Roddenberry had that it's turning out like communicators and cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. It's turning out. We can move to that. And it's this interesting hybrid in that it's actually turning out to be the ultimate form of capitalism because their success, their profits proportionally are way above the blue chip companies, the standard companies. I just think everyone has to buy in. No pun intended, but... um, (laughs) With replicator ration chips, right? Exactly. But in order to get to there, everyone has to buy into this one central idea. Yeah. Like, that's the whole point of government, is everyone just accepting this Mm -hmm. or, you know, even belief, you know, Mm -hmm. and faith is everyone just accepting this. If everyone just was to accept this is the way we need to go for everybody, then we'd all be in a much different place. You know, history, I think, does prove you right. Even Keynesian economics, which has ruled us for Mm. almost a century now, Mm. that took a while to get traction Yeah, without basically the depression to motivate people to say, yeah, the old economic system isn't working a tipping point number of people saying, let's try this new thing called Keynesian economics. It wouldn't have worked otherwise because it would have just been this theory out here, but Mm -hmm. nobody would have had the guts to really implement it on a large enough scale that it could work. This, and I swear this is from the Bible. This is not from Hamilton. Um, (laughs) Oh, you know, so Dave's about to launch into rap. I know. No, I I swear. I promise you this was in the Bible first before uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Micah 4.4, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. We're talking about abundance, whereas I think our view of abundance is kind of like lots. Scripture's view of abundance is that abundance is possible because abundance is about enough. It's not promising that you have your own vineyard, right? You know, that's not what it says there. It says that you'll have your own vine and your own fig tree. So you'll never go hungry. You've got enough. You've got enough. I'm not saying you have your own orchard, you know, yeah. and I think that's what we think of when we think of abundance. We think our own orchard, yeah. yeah, you know, and in fact, the promise in scripture is, no, you'll have enough, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you'll have your own vine, you'll have your own fig tree, yeah, you know. That's Jim Ritchie Dunham's view of abundance, mm-hmm. too. I don't think he sees abundance as infinite, everybody's living in the lap of luxury and decadence. Right. Yeah. I think it's that worldwide... Everybody has enough. Yeah. Right. There will be enough. Mm-hmm. But nobody's in poverty. Nobody yeah. has to worry about where the next meal's coming from. And right. that's the point of the Federation is to go out and help everybody. Yeah. yeah. Not just, oh, yeah, we have everything and we can conquer everything. Mm-hmm. Except when they get their asses handed to them by multiple different alien races. Not the point. But the <laughs> point is. I mean, that's the whole point of like DS9, right? Like, what if mm-hmm. there was a. I mean, let's be honest, like, as a fleet, Starfleet, like, is built to be bad at combat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, if you were designing an actual combat fleet. Why do you have your nacelles on the side very exposed? Yeah. Why? Right. And the, the Dominion show that, right? Like, yeah. the Dominion yeah. kind of pop up, and they're like, well, we're going to torch this thing in 10 seconds. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> when they finally get, what is it, the Intrepid? Yeah. The warship? Right. You know, it's a yeah. special experimental design. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, like, the only ship in all of Starfleet uh-huh. that has been designed from the beginning from the get-go to be a battleship oh that's yeah. the defiant the defiant, defiant. yeah, yeah the defiant, defiant. Yeah. right right yeah, yeah no, intrepid's a class 
Right, Intrepid That's Voyager. Right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. But right, yeah, like the Defiant, like in real life, the Federation should have been cranking out those Defiants like nobody's business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah galaxy starships and right. Constellation. I love the Galaxy Class Starship. You know, it's the it was like my Enterprise. Yeah. You know. But like, let's be honest, that thing's a cruise liner that Picard's in charge. Yes, of it is. Like, <laughs> you no, know, you're right. And there's no heavy cruiser. Like that's a that's a cruise liner. He's right. got kids on board. That right, thing. with kids, <laughs> families, teachers, I mean yeah. all that stuff. There is no way that that's the galaxy flag. class ships would be the ones on the front lines right, of front exploration. Line. Right, combat yeah. vessels. Yeah. Like, that's no, a, no, I agree with you. The other thing about that that I've always wondered about, when you look at the blueprints, uh-huh. there's a captain's yacht. Yes. Yeah. That was in one of the most recent Lower Decks. The actual, they had to go on to the captain's yacht, yeah. which was like the best thing yeah. Yeah. I think I've heard in a long time. <laughs> so, I mean, that show, it's great, but uh, really you actually brought up the captain's yacht. Yeah, yeah, and thank you, because there it is in the blueprints. So yeah. why don't the captains ever use it, right? Picard right. gets in trouble when he's like taking a shuttlecraft somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's just a regular plebeian shuttlecraft. Right. You never see Picard on the captain's yacht, right. mm-hmm. which on a galaxy-class ship had to be right. it had freaking to be awesome. Right. Right. It was awesome in Star Trek Insurrection when it was the Sovereign class. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was a better starship, I will admit. When they got to first contact, the Enterprise-E, it's smoother. It's, like, it's much more coherent. And like, okay, this I could see being the flagship exploratory yeah. frontline vessel of like a of a fleet. (laughs) And that's unfortunately, this is part of where we get into reality Uh interfering with our dream. Yeah, (laughs) I know. In the design of the enterprise, Uh the constitution class. Yeah. Constitution class starships. Yeah. Originally the design was upside down because the warp nacelles were meant to be kind of landing pods, right? Before they knew they didn't have the budget in the special effects to show the ship landing Mm. on different planets. That's an interesting. It was upside down, and those were part of the land. So you didn't have to have retractable landing gear. Huh. Just come down and boom, right. right on the nacelles, right to land. And whoa, wouldn't you know? Desi Lu and NBC didn't give them the special effects budget they needed. Uh-huh. So they had to come. So, so that's they had, why, yeah, they're they're always always orbit, ended yeah. up being, which I thought was brilliant. Uh-huh. Flip the ship upside down. Uh-huh. And then you have transporters, and it ended up looking sleeker that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But that's why the warp nacelles are out there exposed. <laughs> Got it. Got that it. makes way, way more, more sense. sense. <laughs> right. like, it does. Well, and you see that like in first contact era, like design yeah. ships. You know, like if you look at those designs, like finally, like they start tucking the nacelles. In yeah, like the, yeah. the Defiant, like, for example, doesn't have yeah. nacelles on the side. Like, right. Like it always bugged me as a kid growing up of right. why do Star Trek ships have the nacelles? on the side and right. you know Star Wars everything is an engine in the back there's right. like nothing exposed right like the only thing I can think of is they they've got some it, it has I know the technical explanation is it has to do with the geometry of the warp field yeah mm-hmm. that like they have to be that way to create the like the bubble the spherical bubble yeah. That, yeah. Like, the warp, but, but like, the Vulcan ships pardon the pun right. are more logical in their design yes that, they do a ring and that makes more sense right yeah, then you've got to do a lot more damage to keep them from being able to use their warp then uh-huh. if it's a ring system. Yeah. Well, okay, so the Romulans do that, but the Klingons don't. Right. Klingons have standard engines. Yeah. Why, if you're the Federation, do you see your enemies not have nacelles and think from an engineering perspective, maybe I shouldn't have the most important part be so exposed? <laughs> have you read that thing online, which is like what the Federation's basically the like, F it, we'll see if it works. Species of the entire galaxy. 
Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. they are. Uh, That's yes. what the post is, that they're the hold my beer species of the entire galaxy. Oh and like that they're scaring to death all other civilizations because like they really don't know what they're doing. They're just like, well, let's see if this works. <laughs> I've given it all she's got, Captain. Right. Hold my beer. Well, you know, there are, there are, there are yeah. so many episodes where that is true. Yeah. It's yeah. exactly what it is. It's like, I don't care, Scotty, just try it. You know? Right. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And I think there it's was like, one species that actually admitted they admired us for that because yeah. they just, they couldn't do it. Yeah. Right. Or it's like when uh, Boimler, when he was doing all the simulations trying to get to that you know, 100%. It's just like, why? <laughs> just, just why? I mean, granted, that's, you know, character development, but at the same time, that applies to so much of the Federation is, why are you doing this? You don't need to be doing this. Yeah. Here's this thing. This is great. The internet's <laughs> wonderful. That Federation vessels in Star Trek seem to experience bizarre malfunctions with such overwhelming frequency isn't just an artifact of the television serial format. Rather, it's because the Federation, as a culture, are a bunch of deranged hyper-neophiles tooling around in ships, (laughs) packed full with cutting-edge technology they don't really understand, endlessly frustrating if you have to fight them, because they can pull an effective unlimited number of space magic countermeasures out of their butts but they are as likely as not to give themselves a lethal five-dimensional wedgie in the process (laughs) (laughs) all those rampant holograms and warp core malfunctions and accidentally traveling back in time incidents that doesn't actually happen to anyone else in all of the alpha quadrant it's literally just just federation vessels that go off the rails like that no wonder the vulcans disdain us so yes So everyone else in the galaxy thinks human beings are basically the Doc Brown of the galaxy. (laughs) Now, where's that from? You're reading directly, so we have to give credit. Uh, Search for on Google Federation Hold My Beer, and you will find where I am reading from. Federation Hold My Beer. I feel like it's more of Rick rather than Doc Brown. (laughs) I feel like there'd be an entire Reddit that we could just read. Well, we're at our full length now. Do you want to do the game? Yeah, let's do the game. Okay. So our game today is uh, what role would Jesus play in the Federation if Jesus were in the Federation? So not necessarily Starfleet. It could be the Federation as a whole. Yeah, because yeah. I have mine's like he's outside of Starfleet, which I'll get to. Okay. But okay. I feel like he'd be an engineer. Be an engineer, okay. Like just because it's like going back to the you know, the abundance and being mm-hmm. able to reach people like work like a replicator tech. Or, yeah. or like something along those lines. I feel like he would be in engineering so mm-hmm. that he could, you know, help everyone around him or help the Federation yeah. as a whole. I feel like engineering, not just because he's a carpenter, mm-hmm. but I feel like engineering would be the direction that he would go in. Okay. Like Scotty, he could work miracles with the yes, warp, exactly. warp drive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. at yeah, the yeah, most yeah. critical moments. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? So mine is that he's like standing outside every Federation recruiting office. Like, <laughs> Preventing people, like trying to get them to not sign up for Starfleet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, he's like this really annoying, like, homeless guy who's like basically like convincing, like, 17 year old Harry Kim, throw away your live stream, come and follow me. Don't participate. Right, don't, that, don't. Oh <laughs> Harry Kim's a low hanging fruit for Jesus know, on that one I because all he has to yeah, do yeah, is he's say, so, You won't be an ensign forever right, with me. You won't be an yeah. ensign forever. And Harry right. Kim will be like, yeah, Sign me up. Just sign yeah. me up. Right, right. <laughs> But Tom Paris, you know, yeah. it's like you don't have to like please your father. Like, just be homeless with me. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And there'd be these great. Let's go find alternate Tom Paris who like is homeless with this dude, <laughs> and actually happier. But you know, yeah. Like, 
<laughs> in an unusually serious moment, mm-hmm. Uh-oh. I would see him replicating his, the pattern that we have in the Bible, mm-hmm. in that he would be a Bajoran under the Cardassians. Mm-hmm. Cardassians. Wow, which one? Same thing. Yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> Both as fictional. Evil, yeah. evil empires, yeah, yeah, yeah same yeah. things. Um, yeah. Or Tasha Yar's people on yeah. the mm-hmm. planet. Right. right. He would be amongst the oppressed of the Federation, where the fe- right. full Federation force hasn't yet evolved. Right. So mm. those fringe planets. What's that episode in the original series where they go to the Roman planet? Oh, and, bread and circuses. Yeah, yeah. And like they figure out that like the slaves are actually like worshiping God. Yeah. Know, like, With yeah. Uhura in one of the most no da moments, unfortunately, they ever yeah. gave her to say is they're not talking about the sun in the sky, Captain. Yeah. It's the son of God. All right. You didn't need that last line because we all got it. The yeah. script was written well enough that we got it. We got that. <laughs> yeah. But... You don't have to hammer that home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I would guess more than likely mm-hmm. it would have been as a Bajoran under the Cardassians. Yeah. Because Hmm. He would have also radicalized, you know, and really upset the Kais, the yeah. religion on Bajor and the, its hmm. bureaucracy. That's a missed opportunity by DS9, because you could have done a really good religious movement that offends both the Kais and the Cardassian occupation. Like, oh, that's a really good metaphor. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And you're right. It was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Because I think in reality that would have happened, right? The Kais. Or a lot of them are like pseudo in league with... Cardassians anyway. Right, with uh, the occupation. Yeah. Like yeah. the Sanhedrin. You know, right. the priests, a lot of them were in cahoots with the Romans. Right. chief priests were... So, you know, it, I think there were a lot of parallels. So I think that's where I would lean. Yeah, it's a good one. I would think that he'd be Vulcan and would help with the logic movement. Mm-hmm. Building everyone towards that logic away from emotion and towards... Mm-hmm. goal of making logical mm-hmm. decisions or was cyborg actually jesus come back because he was striking that balance between yeah. logic and emotion and he healed he allowed you he allowed mm-hmm. you to forgive yourself of the things that were weighing you down but why does god need a starship <laughs> <laughs> and well, on that note the best lines it's actually ever. a really good like that movie is not great However, there are good moments in that movie. There are. The other good line in that is uh, actually, though, when, like, Cyborg's doing that healing their pain thing, and, like, Mm. Kirk, like, resists it, and he's like, no, I need my pain. (laughs) Like, you know, that's actually a good character insight into who Kirk really is. Yeah. No, like, this is part of who I am, and I'm not going to let you take this from me just so that I feel better. This gets into my real-life job Mm -hmm. in leadership work. That baggage, Mm -hmm. when you get perspective on it when you Mm -hmm. get hold of it that's what drives growth right and that's what makes you in the case of my work that what helps what make you a better leader so Mm -hmm. you can introspect look at that baggage learn from it and grow from it right so that's part of what makes kirk a great leader right he knows his pain he knows his baggage right and he grows from it but they even way back in the original series Mm -hmm. you know and that's one thing i like they kept kirk's character consistent Mm -hmm. all the way up through into the movies Mm-hmm. Because way back when they go onto the planet and the Triffid like spores make everybody happy. Yeah. You know? Right. And Kirk's like, yeah. And, and Kirk gets out of their influence by remembering, no, right. I love this ship. Right. Captaining this ship is who I am. Right. It's what I do. Yeah. Right, right, right. Again, the strength of Star Trek, right? They yeah. really good characterization of their core characters. Mm-hmm. And they're consistent with it. When the characters change, events have happened that it makes sense that they changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike getting back to last week when you know you brought up the second Tron movie, where Tron is evil. 
in the second movie, and mm-hmm. there's no really solid explanation why. Mm-hmm. And in the critical scene at the end, Tron suddenly converts to good for no apparent reason whatsoever. He was updating. Yeah. <laughs> throughout the entire movie. Like, he, there was just one bug that just was in constant. You like, just accept that Tron is a Microsoft, <laughs> Microsoft product. It all <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> On that note, folks. <laughs> This has been Church in Space. In 3D! Oh, man. I love it. Hey, Dan. Mm -hmm. Did you remember to bring the floppy disks this time? Oh! I'll bring them next week. Okay, good. (sighs)